Welcome back to What to Gain for Your Brain with me, Kirsten Mortimer, where we have been talking with research scientists and physicians about the brain, stroke risk, and vitamin D. Last time we discussed how vitamin D works in the immune system as well as in certain brain disorders, how cardiovascular disease is a central issue in the pathology of cognitive decline, the social and economic impacts of stroke recovery, dealing with confounding factors of measuring vitamin D, and the brain health advice Dr. Lenga gives his patients. Before we talk to our guests today, I want to talk about vitamin D's specific effects on stroke risk and rehabilitation now that we have some good understanding of stroke and vitamin D in general. Considering that stroke is one of the leading causes of death and disability worldwide, and that vitamin D has receptors in almost every part of the brain, it comes as no surprise that researchers decided to investigate the potential relationship that vitamin D could have on stroke risk. Evidence for the benefit of vitamin D impacting stroke risk has increased in past decades, making it clear that there may be an inverse relationship between stroke risk and serum vitamin D levels. Vitamin D deficiency is common in stroke patients because they tend to be older and the skin's ability to produce vitamin D decreases with age. Older individuals generally take in less sun exposure while also exhibiting a higher chance of having inadequate dietary consumption of vitamin D. Generally, ischemic injury in the brain seen in stroke cases is associated with many inflammatory events, such as incoming circulation of immune cells as well as activation of endothelial cells, astrocytes, and microglia. These immune cells have vitamin D receptors and respond to the hormonally active form of vitamin D, 1,25-dihydroxyvitamin D, and vitamin D regulates inflammation in the brain through inhibition of prostaglandins, mitogen-activated protein kinase, or MAPK, and nuclear factor kappa-B pathways. Vitamin D deficiency worsens the cerebral inflammation and neuronal ischemic death because of less inhibition of these inflammatory responses and the decrease in the availability of neuroprotective growth factors. The cascade of inflammatory events that occur in ischemic injury in stroke patients can be ameliorated by vitamin D sufficiency because of its ability to activate microglia and the immune system. The exact relationship between 25-hydroxyvitamin D3, which is the major circulating form and best biomarker for vitamin D, and stroke risk has been investigated in recent years. Many studies in the past decade explain specifically that vitamin D deficiency is associated with a higher risk of stroke and that there is evidence indicating that patients who experience acute stroke present with lower levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D3 with increased risk of future strokes. In the Rotterdam study, a large ongoing prospective population-based cohort in the Netherlands since 1990 with participants aged 45 or greater, lower serum vitamin D was associated with prevalence of stroke. Severely vitamin D deficient participants, defined as less than 30 nanomoles per liter, which is also 12 nanograms per milliliter, compared to sufficient at greater than 30 nanomoles per liter, which is also 12 nanograms per milliliter, showed the highest odds ratio of stroke risk at 1.31, and at baseline, participants with lower serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 concentration were more likely to have had a stroke compared to participants with higher 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 concentrations at an odds ratio of 1.36. However, the Rotterdam study did not conduct repeated vitamin D measurements throughout rehabilitation to assess if vitamin D levels were dynamic and the participants were predominantly white, which could lead to non-generalizable results. Given that there were some limitations, more longitudinal research, such as this one, are needed to fully understand the relationship between 25-hydroxyvitamin D3 and stroke risk.
Additionally, in a study from 2017 from Brazil, after controlling for age, sex, ethnicity, body mass index, smoking status, diabetes, dyslipidemia, and other variables associated with ischemic events, vitamin D deficient patients were still 16.64 times more likely to experience acute ischemic stroke compared to those who were vitamin D sufficient. Levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 in stroke patients were also associated with more severe white matter lesions, enlarged perivascular spaces, and cerebral small vessel disease burden detected by MRI. In mouse models, deficiency in 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 decreased expression of tight junction proteins, occludin and claudin-5, after ischemic stroke, leading to blood-brain barrier damage. Ultimately, recent studies and new knowledge of vitamin D's neuroprotection have shown that lower levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 can negatively affect the brain through less protein regulation, neurotransmitter synthesis, NGF production, and immune function, which can lead to increased risk of stroke. Those who are treated for stroke can continue to experience complications during rehabilitation, and studies are being done to investigate how the neuroprotection of vitamin D may play a significant role in these processes. A study from China in 2019 reports that vitamin D deficiency, defined as less than 25 nanomoles per liter, which is also 10 nanograms per milliliter, and insufficiency, which is 25 to 50 nanomoles per liter, which is also 10 to 20 nanograms per milliliter, at admission, were associated with a high risk of in-hospital stroke-associated pneumonia in patients with acute ischemic stroke, where the risk of stroke-associated pneumonia and vitamin D levels were inversely related. Specifically, levels of vitamin D for non-stroke-associated pneumonia patients were 61 nanomoles per liter versus 55.2 nanomoles per liter for stroke-associated pneumonia patients. Additionally, a study from China in 2014 found that serum 25-hydroxy-vitamin D3 levels less than 11.2 nanograms per milliliter were associated with developing post-stroke depression in acute ischemic stroke patients. There was also an inverse correlation between levels of 25-hydroxy-vitamin D3 and NIH stroke scale score, where stroke severity increases with score. Dysfunction in the central nervous system and decreased cognitive function can also lead to post-stroke depression due to an interruption of quality of life brought on by new physical disabilities and a potential interruption of serotonin synthesis. However, vitamin D can influence mood changes by protecting neurons from 6-hydroxydopamine, which was otherwise toxic to serotonin synthesis. Throughout rehabilitation, stroke patients experience a wide range of complications that could potentially be understood by further examining the role that vitamin D deficiency plays in the brain. Understanding the relationship between vitamin D and post-stroke depression specifically could improve the approach to stroke rehabilitation. Out of around 305 stroke patients in a Chinese hospital, 189 developed post-stroke depression and the serum levels of vitamin D were found to be significantly lower in stroke patients with post-stroke depression than in stroke patients without it. Specifically, serum vitamin D levels recorded were 57.36 nanomoles per liter for stroke patients without post-stroke depression, 44.93 nanomoles per liter for stroke patients with post-stroke depression, and 65.14 nanomoles per liter for healthy controls. However, similar to the study in China in 2019, this study had only an initial measurement of vitamin D when presenting with stroke, even though vitamin D levels have been reported to be dynamic throughout rehabilitation. Additionally, this 2019 study grouped patients into vitamin D insufficiency, which was less than 75 nanomoles per liter, which was also less than 30 nanograms per milliliter, 
deficiency at less than 50 nanomoles per liter, which is also 20 nanograms per milliliter, and severe deficiency, which is less than 30 nanomoles per liter, which is also 12 nanograms per milliliter, by the standards of the National Academy of Medicine in the U.S., whereas the study from 2015 divided the range of raw vitamin D serum values into quartiles. Although this represents differential methodologies, both reported the significance of vitamin D in reducing stroke risk and post-stroke complications. Now let's get into our discussion with Dr. Amy Zhang. Dr. Zhang is currently a research scientist at Casa Colina Hospital and Centers for Healthcare in Pomona, California, and is the chief science officer for a precision medicine startup called Strain Genie, which uses your DNA to inform you on health and wellness tips. Her current research focuses on using neuromodulatory interventions such as TDCS and neurofeedback to understand the recovery of language and cognitive functions after stroke. She has over 10 years of clinical experience and has led projects to identify biomarkers to increase the quality of diagnoses in brain-injured patients. Studying the complexity of the brain and its connectivity to understand loss and recovery of function is no easy feat, which is why I'm grateful that she came on my podcast. Let's do it. the TDCS, kind of a little familiar with the TDCS and aphasia study. Um, So it's essentially um, an extension to that. Um, Basically, we want to uh, have more funding so we can collect a larger sample size. Mm -hmm. So and implement some uh, machine learning and just more advanced uh, analysis approach. Um, Because what we really want to do is try to find a way where we can personalize uh, stroke rehabilitation. But yeah, so, um, so one of the, the biggest challenges with uh, stroke, with studying stroke and neuroimaging in stroke patients is that they have very heterogeneous lesions, right? Mm-hmm. So you could have a lesion here, a lesion there, but then because you know the brain is kind of uh, all connected. So when you have one lesion, it can have a downstream effect, uh, depends on what what other regions are connected with this lesion area, um, that it can have a negative effect. It can disconnect some of the mm-hmm. communication between brain regions. Mm-hmm. So the, the when you're trying to study um, a population and it's so heterogeneous, it's just hard to compare them, right? Mm-hmm. And we're trying to, so what, what I proposed was instead of looking at the lesion location, which is what most people would focus on, right? Where the damage is, you want to maybe put this, uh, put the stimulation over the damage area. But I think that's limited because if you depends on the extent of the damage right obviously if you still have some you know a healthy amount of residual tissue stimulation could be 
you know, decently effective. But let's say you have, you know, patients who have very large lesions and there's like not much, right? Not much healthy tissue left for stimulation to be even be effective. So where could you stimulate instead? So if you apply um, uh, the concept of, uh, uh, you know, uh, neurocircuitry, right? So let's say, um, you have a, for aphasia patients, aphasia stroke patients, they typically have their left, left uh, hemisphere uh, damage. And you have to know what does this like language node on the left hemisphere, what does it connect with, with the rest of the brain? So, and is, is it, can you target what it's indirectly connected with but that area that the indirect connection is still preserved. So what's interesting is that the cerebellum, the right cerebellum, which we normally think of it as a motor, right? Motor, motor functioning, but more recent, and I would say in the past decade, um, the cerebellum's role has expanded um, to include cognition, uh, language, even like motivation and emotion. So it's no longer just like a mind motor movement. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So what I'm proposing, and um, so uh, just a quick recap. So at CASA, we've been doing the um, TDCS studies. This is our fourth year, actually. The first two years, we were stimulating the frontal part of the brain. That's the standard right, the standard protocol, the lesions here, you stimulate it here. Um, the second follow-up study, which we started launching when COVID hit, so that was just bad timing, but fortunately we got um, an extension um, to continue it this year. Um, so the second study is to stimulate the right cerebellum, right, because in these patients, uh, they could have a lot of damage here, maybe here. So a lot of the cortical damage, right? But their cerebellum um, is essentially intact, very well preserved. So our, our hypothesis is that if you stimulate the cerebellum and the cerebellum is connected with the left language regions, Maybe through that, it can provide as like a, a gateway, non-lesion gateway to improve the uh, stimulation outcome. So, so does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I, shifting, I, it's, like, it's like a whole paradigm shift. Yeah, I feel like every other day there's like a new network or connection between different brains. Yeah. I never would have guessed that like a, a connection between the cerebellum and kind right? of like the left frontal would would do much. And I think, I think it's really interesting just learning about how certain people who have lesions in kind of Broca's area, it's like mm -hmm. not all of them have the same kind of like speech exactly you know, deficits as, as each other. So yeah, it's really just heterogeneous. So that sounds really, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, so hopefully, you know, we get a good score on the, on the grant. Um, they do like, uh, you know, very innovative kind of uh, approaches. And mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's pretty innovative, you know, to to kind of shift our perspective instead mm -hmm. of being super. So the problem with neuroscience is that um, the neuroscience field is that people are so cortical centric. 
like just always about the cortex, you know, like you know, cortex this, cortex that. In fact, when I was in, in grad school, my mentor would frequently say, oh, the cerebellum does nothing. Like, oh, you know, like, don't worry about the cerebellum. Because when you think about, um, you know, higher cognition, you don't think about cerebellum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, uh, in the past, people who have like essentially missing cerebellum, they're, you know, still kind of fine. Mm -hmm. So, so it's been kind of this attitude, like discriminating against the cerebellum in, in, the, in the neuroscience field, but mm -hmm. the cerebellum in a rehabilitation uh, perspective is very important because it has so many um, uh, connections. And doesn't and, it have like the most surface area too? Exactly. Like, it has like, it, it. I think uh, it accounts for seventy percent of mm. the of the of the neurons in the in the brain, but it's like very very dense there mm. because a lot of like learning and you know rehabilitation is sort of like a skill learning, and so I think from a rehabilitation standpoint, targeting the cerebellum could be maybe the one of the better targets. Mm -hmm. You know, because it can handle the motor, now it can handle non-motor functions. And it's relatively intact in a lot of the patients. So, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, we, we start to kind of uh, give uh, the cerebellum a little more credit. And um, it deserves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's been long neglected. I think there's mm -hmm. still a lot more we can figure out, discover about the cerebellum. Um, and, um, yeah, so we, we, at least in my classes, we haven't been told that it does nothing, but <laughs> I just by omission mm -hmm. and not talking about it as much kind of yep. implies that it's not as important. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, I don't know, in future classes, generations, it'll be talked about more and maybe your study will lead to that. So that is very, yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess just start like at the beginning, tell mm -hmm. me about your background and kind of education and where you are now and your position and what yeah. got you interested in the brain. Yeah, so um, I uh, I'm, I started undergrad um, with the biology major. Uh, not really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I kind of wanted to go into medicine um, or something similar. Uh, but I could not stand just how boring the biology labs are. <laughs> it's like literally counting, hand counting, like, you know, like culture. Flies. Like, yeah, flies, Drosophila flies and all that stuff. I was like, okay, no, I can't. It's, it just like, didn't feel applicable. Like, uh, I don't know. It just, I didn't understand it. Picture I don't, yeah, it, exactly. I'm like, why am I doing this? And, you know, so I switched over to psychology, right? I think that's a, I think that's a pretty common shift, you know, from biology to psychology. And then in psychology, it felt like more relatable. And um, when I switched over to psychology, I also joined um, a neuroimaging lab. Um, a functional neuroimaging lab, fMRI. You, have you heard of the term fMRI? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of uh, where I would say my 
career started building because um, that lab was a, you know, back then this was, you know, more than 10 years ago, uh, neuroimaging was still in its infancy. Um, and that lab was uh, specifically studying, you know, fMRI. Um, and where was this? This was an, at Indiana University. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was fortunate enough to have like a lot of hands-on experience with a data analysis, neuroimaging data analysis, which um, became a really important skill set that I that I that helped me get a, like a research associate position at UCLA. So after I graduated college, um, I applied to a couple positions at UCLA and then accepted the one that was from the neurosurgery department where um, they do a lot of neuroimaging and they do a lot of clinical, like clinical studies and neuroimaging. So this is kind of like where my background started. And then I worked a couple years uh, in that lab and then I transitioned to a PhD program and started studying uh, disorders of consciousness, which is, you know, one of the most severe forms of like brain injury. Mm-hmm. So, and, and now I'm here, you know, studying, also studying brain injury, but in stroke and uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, so this is sort of, uh, but, you know, I actually wanted to go to med school and be a doctor, but the, I'm really like, uh, if I see something like a surgery or like blood, I get like you know, <laughs> weirded out. Yeah. So but you so, still went to the neurosurgery one of, of yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except all my work, primarily my work was uh, just looking at the MRI data. Mm-hmm. Thank God. There was one time where I had to look at um, some surgery like images and. I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I was like, okay, there's other, there are other ways I can um, kind of be involved in medical medicine, but not necessarily have to practice it. So I think like, uh, you know, doing a PhD, uh, but focusing on clinical studies is like a, mm-hmm. is a decent alternative. Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, give yourself a little bit of time before, you know, you jump into uh, Mm. more education. Um, I've never talked to anyone who took a year or two off and like regretted it, you know? Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm, you know, since I don't fully know when it's a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Med school, you have to pay. Yeah. Whereas grad school, they pay you. That's why (laughs) grad school seems a little bit more, um, appealing right now <laughs> yeah 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 i don't i don't regret my decision with the phd i'm actually glad yeah. that i did a phd instead of md and i think it, it just allows me a little more um kind of flexibility which mm-hmm. is just like oh like what i want to study you know i like like you know i'm primarily studying um uh, brain injury you know with stroke and uh, traumatic brain injury here but let's say I'm interested in some other, you know, other topics. Like it would be easy for me just to be like, hey, I want to, you know, like come up with another study that studies uh, maybe Parkinson's disease or yeah. you know, something else or depression, you know. So mm-hmm. it's, 
So, so I, I, I like that, and I can apply my my skill set. You know, a lot of the technical skill set to these different. Uh, as well. And you're still like, I think, because I really want to work with people, and I think mm -hmm. you're obviously still able to work with a ton of people, exactly. and you got paid to yeah. go to grad school, which is just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I actually really enjoy um, interacting with uh, uh, some of the patients here, especially the, the family members. You know, mm. they have, um, they have. Uh, sometimes the family members would do so much research that it actually, and they, and they bring the new research to me. And that actually like helps me mm -hmm. like gain more insights. Do you ever find it annoying? Do you think? Because mm -hmm. you kind of, I would think know more about than what the family members know. So do you ever find it, it kind of like hindering what you're trying to get across or? Um, I mean, so far I would say, uh, you know, I, there, definitely there's going to be some um, parts where, you know, you, you already know the stuff and then you're, you're trying to explain to them. But I think it's always important to listen to what the patients, what their concerns are, what they find. Um, yeah, they, so, so I have, a, I have one uh, patient's um, family member he would actually find, you know, these new interventions out there that it's not maybe not even published yet that I, you know, that I wouldn't be able to find easily. But I think um, the fact that they're just so motivated to find something, I just think that's, that's very helpful for me because then I can assess it. Then I can, you know, I can go check out, it's like, oh, okay, this, this, tool could have some potential and then I would do more research on it mm -hmm. but I think overall it's been um positive mm -hmm. um, but you know obviously you you have to be very patient and mm -hmm. you have to go in with this attitude um uh like oh maybe I can learn something new that attitude mm -hmm. Which I think is important to apply to like almost everything. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. That, always, yeah. yeah, never just just always stay humble. You know, never think you know more than. I mean, yeah, you 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 can know certain topics, but there's always room for improvement. Right. Essentially, yeah. Right. So I guess also just describe in Casa Clina, describe your mm -hmm. experience working with stroke patients, and then. What do you, what have you found that it's the most important to remember about stroke rehab? My experience here with the stroke patients, you know, again, um, emphasizing how much heterogeneity there is across patients. And um, sometimes, you know, the, the same protocol is not effective for certain patients. And, you know, there's a lot of factors, right? There's you know, the obvious factors are like the lesion, lesion size and lesion, lesion location, but then there's also kind of age. And then uh, the, uh, these patients also have a lot of other comorbidities. And then they're also under so many different medications that could, you know, have an, uh, have an effect on the intervention. So it's just, very challenging, I would say. I would say like stroke rehabilitation is probably one of the most challenging 
mm -hmm. um, fields just because of the, the heterogeneity. And I found when I was right. there, even just a different level, even if, you know, across the board with the things you mentioned are the same, just motivation and people asked for breaks at different times, mm -hmm. regardless of how similar they were across the board for what yep. you just mentioned, you know, yeah, so motivation on some of these studies just definitely yeah. differs. Oh yeah, exactly. And then, you know, some, some patients are, yeah. So the more, obviously the more motivated you are, the usually the better the outcome is. And then, you know, so there, and we had a lot of issues with the uh, patients just falling asleep, like, especially during the neurofeedback. <laughs> okay. To, in their defense, I did the neurofeedback and like, yeah. I got sleepy. <laughs> it's like so yeah. yeah. I just kind of sat there just like, and I was like, I'm so tired. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, I, I, I do that. I do the uh, neurofeedback sometimes and I get sleepy too because it's essentially, um, the protocol that we were doing is essentially like a, a meditation, mm -hmm. um, you know, requiring to be still, be uh, alert, but not, you know, not too intense you know, just somewhat relaxed. And I never thought about it like that. It kind of is like meditation, just watching like this. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and it, yeah, it's it, it, even for, for us, you know, we're prone to falling asleep, but then imagine the, the, the patients who are on, you know, mm -hmm. on medication and a lot of them have a sleep apnea. So their, their sleep is like really bad um in the first place so that's like that's that's another challenge just to kind of keeping them alert right and what engaged. have you what have you found so far do you think is is the most successful intervention or do you envision this new grant proposal that you have to be the most successful yeah um i would say tdcs our tdcs studies has uh been showing the most promise and now we're just kind of manipulating with different target sites. So, you know, perhaps in the future, um, we can figure out more uh, what, what's, what type of, uh, what aspects, what specific aspects of language is improved with the different target stimulations. You know, typically Broca's area stimulation, you're improving language production, Whereas Wernicke stimulation, you're trying to improve uh, um, comprehension. Mm -hmm. So now with the, the cere cerebellum stimulation, like what is that improving? Is it mm -hmm. a little bit of both or is it more toward the production because of the motor association mm -hmm. or, is still, or is there still some comprehension improvements that you can get? Right, or even improving like just connections between. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we did find a neuroplasticity. So what what uh, um, inspired this alternative cerebellar target was this preliminary finding from the Broca stimulation from our first study. We found neuroplasticity uh, in the right cerebellum that's correlating with improvement in performance. So when the cerebellum is changing, the, the uh, patient's uh, performance also improved. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it, it would make, so the way I interpreted the mechanism is most likely, so when you're stimulating the, the Broca's area, because it is structurally connected to the cerebellum, it's also 
it has this downstream effect, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, so then the cerebellum feeds back to the language areas. So I, I think that it's probably somewhere, something like that, how the, how the mechanism mm -hmm. works. Something else I also like asking is just kind of about other confounding factors. So in doing the studies, how much do you think contributes to natural neuroplasticity in these things, like in mm -hmm. longer courses of these studies? Because then also like in researching vitamin D, there's so many different supplementation ranges and confounding mm -hmm. factors and calcium levels. So like, yeah. I like asking about this. So yeah. how much do you think contributes to that? And how do you account for those? So, um, Nowadays, I try to ask for a list of medication or things that they're taking. Um, that could be a potential confounding factor. Um, and also we are um, implementing, we added on a, a genetic component to the TDCS studies because there's been a study that came out showing that um, there's the, the BDNF, How, do you know a BDNF, a brain yeah. drive? Great. Yeah, so BDNF, you know, is associated with neuroplasticity and, you know, different activities could uh, increase your BDNF levels, you know, maybe just like exercising or just exposing to, I don't know, just even listening to music mm. or, you know, a lot of different things. Um, but there's one study specifically on TDCS um, treating aphasia they found that uh, patients with uh, different uh, genetic variants um, for the uh, BDNF gene showed um, kind of uh, uh, different uh, behavioral outcomes where they found, um, you know, people who, I, I forget what the exact variant was, but there is an association, right, between this BDNF gene and your uh, response to uh, TDCS. So we want to, so we started uh, collecting um, uh, DNA samples as well to kind of just better understand just individual factors mm -hmm. uh, relating to uh, prognosis. And, and that's going to help us with, so the ultimate goal, right, is personalized medicine. Mm. That's just, that's the ultimate goal. And I think, uh, and personalized medicine has been gaining a lot of attention too. Um, I mean, I think in particular, stroke rehabilitation needs personalized medicine even more so because of just the variability, just the vast variability. So, you know, we got to identify, you know, factors that would influence response to outcome. Age and time since injury are also potential co-founding um, factors, um, but we're, we're um, let's see, was there anything specific that you wanted to ask in, in terms of uh, confounding factors? Or, Not really. I just, I just like yeah. learning how re people in research kind of account for those. Yeah, because we just tried to know yeah. in mm -hmm. these studies, there's like different ranges of how they even define vitamin D sufficiency and deficiency and insuff insufficiency. Mm -hmm. So in one study, if they're saying, and then also in some studies, they're doing placebo versus supplementation, but mm -hmm. uh, most of the group of the supplementation are already sufficient in vitamin D. So giving mm -hmm. them 
vitamin D supplements is not going to change anything. So there's just like a lot of difficulties in parsing through this literature and also just as a 22 year old, maybe going into research Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. medicine. Like it's, I like to ask and helpful to know how other people. Yeah. Yeah. So basically uh, you just collect as much data. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, so we, you know, we, you know, obviously if resources allow like, you know, like um, typically we do a baseline, like a baseline pre-intervention, we collect all the data at once and then uh, post-intervention. But, you know, sometimes they could do like an interim, um, mm-hmm. another, so just, and then also like the questionnaires that you ask, you know, the demographic or just clinical information, just try to gather as much information as possible. And, you know, maybe in the beginning, you don't really know exactly what um, variables could be confounding factors, but then as you do the analysis, you start to gain more insights. And mm-hmm. if you have uh, data, if you have a lot of data collected, then you can look back and then see if there is there's like a trend or some pattern that you can identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then you just kind of like improve the protocol over time. Yeah, you know, just just. A little bit of uh, trial and error, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the beginning. If you envision, so that you're talking about the BDNF, if you envision mm-hmm. um, kind of making relationships between this and outcome and um, kind of better rehabilitation, mm-hmm. what would you, and then you prove this with multiple studies, and then would you mm-hmm. envision it going into the direction of like you would inject it into someone? like recovering oh, from stroke or how would yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, that like, now there's like a stem cell right. research therapy for stroke, which I think could be pretty promising because of the neuro- neurogenesis aspect. Um, but I haven't really thought about like, I mean, I, in, injecting like anything like invasive, I try to, because, you know, it, it's mm. just, I, I try to just kind of stay away from, and I think there are other natural ways that you can increase, you know, BDNF, like, you know, exercise, um, certain diet, maybe, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to jump to immediate, like, you know, injection. Yeah, I'm on that train as well. It's like, yeah. I like other things first. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just because, uh, you know, when we're trying to isolate molecule or, you know, drug, it we don't really know if that's giving us the kind of the entourage effect so Mm -hmm. a lot of times when when we supplement you know when we eat you know when we do like other activities there's this like entourage effect right and Mm -hmm. I think that's that's usually a little more it's maybe better like less likely to suffer from side effects because um, a lot of times with the with Western medication is that it's so potent. You know, you get one pill mm-hmm. that's so potent, and it enters your body. Like yes, it addresses. You know, it could be very effective in the in immediately for addressing you know whatever symptom you have. But then you hear about all these side effects, right? It's because our body likes to be in a state of homeostasis, right? We, we want to be balanced. When we introduce a, a drug, that it kind of like tips the balance and then your body's gonna try to bring that back the balance. And then mm-hmm. oftentimes that contributes to a lot of the side effects. Mm-hmm. 
you, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I, I, I generally, you know, sometimes the side effects are even worse than whatever symptom, you know, you're, you're right. trying to treat. And that's what I'm seeing with a lot of these stroke patients when they're on so many different types of medication. And, and then also the medication could interact, you know, and it's just like, then they have a slew of other problems that you could then have to address. So then it becomes like prescribing even more pills and mm. it becomes- That's why like, osteopathic school yeah. just seems like much more appealing to me as well. And this, I guess this is also why these treatments should be so individualized just because there's so exactly. many factors is the point. And so if you, you're kind of noticing that there's like, um, that the body likes to be in homeostasis, how, mm-hmm. how do you envision like potential vitamin D supplementation kind of on- mm-hmm. On these rehab programs? Yeah. So, um, you know, since the pandemic hit, there's been a lot of attention on vitamin D because, you know, they started to show there's maybe a correlation between, you know, vitamin D deficiency and, uh, you know, COVID, COVID risk, also like stroke risk. But with, uh, with supplementation, especially vitamin D, vitamin D supplementation, you have to be kind of careful about it with with any supplementation is uh, essentially but especially supplementing with fat soluble uh supplements right because uh you know unlike uh, vitamin c you know vitamin c which is you know uh water soluble you know you can take a pretty high dose and then you just kind of like uh your body eliminates it through the urine right but then with something like fat soluble, like vitamin D, you have to be kind of careful because it's not as easy for your body to metabolize and get rid of, right? Um, oftentimes uh, you can, if you take too much, it can kind of like circulate in your body and you know could damage your liver. So, while I do think it's important to keep your vitamin D levels uh, away from the deficient, I think they, it depends on uh, uh, different studies, but I think below 30 mm-hmm. is when they right. categorize it as like deficient, yeah. but it could be, you know, it could be below 20 or something. I think they're finding that thir- like 30 I think initially it was more for bone health. And now that they're mm-hmm. finding like better immune function and nervous system function, mm-hmm. there's finding even between like 40 to 60 is better. Mm-hmm. But it also gets hard because when you measure these, it's another confounding factors thing. Cause it's like, are they, do they have better vitamin supplementation? Are they getting adequate vitamins and minerals? Or is it, do they have mm-hmm. better vitamin D just because they're going outside and working out more, which also helps. Exactly, so like exactly. Getting more sun. So it's, yeah. it's just, there's so much. Have you gotten your vitamin D levels checked? Do you know? I have not gotten them checked. Um, After doing this project, I definitely have wanted to. And especially going from Connecticut to San Diego is Mm -hmm. um, I miss the sun and realize like how little of sun I was getting. But I definitely, I take between, I probably take around like 3000 units a day right now. Okay. Um, and in the people I've talked to, they said that to at least 2000 a day is what they yep. recommend to their patients. Yep. Um, yep. But I've also heard that it's pretty difficult to um, kind of overdose on 
but also what you're saying makes sense and that you have to be careful with fat soluble because like vitamin D can, can cross the, the blood brain barrier. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Cause vitamin D is essentially like a hormone. It's a, yeah. it's a steroid. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that one, that's what makes it kind of unique and different from the other vitamins um, because it can directly cross the blood brain barrier and, you know, right. bind to receptors in the brain. So I've always been vitamin D deficient. Uh, every single time that I've done a test, um, I think my levels are usually around 17, which is, yeah, which is pretty bad, but yeah. it's always been around there. Uh -huh. um, and I mean, I haven't gotten it checked like this year, like mm -hmm. for about a year. I'm really bad with like supplementing. Now, I, I know I should be taking probably, you know, at least well, I don't want to say at least, maybe no more than 2,000 units a day because mm -hmm. your body can also can absorb, you know, so you got to like, you know, factor in like, oh, how realistically, how much can my body like absorb this? Mm. You know, how much of that excess is not absorbed and then, you know, gets accumulated in the liver? Right, or you should eat it with like fatty food. food. Exactly, right. yeah, that was the other point. So, you know, so typically with the fat-soluble supplements, they recommend that you eat with some, you know, with your meal, you know, provided that there's some fat-soluble food. Right. Right, in your, in your meal. But I ha always have this like worry of over-supplementing because it, because the vitamin D is a hormone and I worry like, uh, is this because I, because I also have endometriosis and have you heard of this condition? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And endometriosis is associated with uh, sort of like a higher estrogen levels. Mm -hmm. So I worry, you know, like if taking too much vitamin D could increase my estrogen levels, could, uh, worsen my endometriosis so you know so you have to right. kind of like think about it in that way it's like um i mean obviously if you don't have any uh, other conditions you might not need to worry about it as much but you know if you're other taking other medication like you just like, think about like how is it interacting mm -hmm. right with the supplement so i just i i just try to be just on the safer side but then I guess it's also really bad that I'm deficient still. So I, I try to, uh -huh. I try to get it from the sun as much yeah. as possible. I, I think, think the sun the is the way. primary way. Unfortunately, yeah. you can't get it through like a window, which is upsetting. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. So inside, but I know because <laughs> the window, minute. windows block the UVB. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what but, helps with the yeah i think the sun is definitely the primary way i uh very little foods have it it's more just mm -hmm. like fatty fish eggs mm -hmm. milk is yeah. probably the most but you, yeah. you can only have so many glasses of milk a day so i know i think i don't i don't yeah. i don't like uh so i think another reason that i'm deficient is because i don't really drink the fortified stuff because if you look at you know by uh, if you look at milk you know uh, orange juice what they add in is a d2 so yeah. do you know the difference between D2 and the D3? Yeah, I've heard, or the someone I've talked to mentioned that it was, even though D3 is technically like what we make in our skin, that taking mm -hmm. D2 is basically has the same beneficial effects. Yeah, so 
yeah, some people say, will say, oh, you know, they're, they're the same, you know, you can take either one. Mm -hmm. But I think D2 is, uh, so D2 is usually cheaper to produce. Um, and usually it's a little slightly like lower quality. And I, I think that uh, you get better absorption with the D3 because it's mm -hmm. a more natural occurring. Whereas a D2, it's maybe it's uh, not as um, uh, effective. Mm -hmm. for, that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. I, I would, um, I usually recommend uh, D3, you know, just go to, if you go to like uh, CVS or you know, grocery stores, they usually mm -hmm. uh, get the, get the D3. But if a doctor is prescribing you, so whenever a doctor sees that I have vitamin D deficiency, first thing they do is let me prescribe you 50,000 units of D2. I've heard of that. Where oh. you take once a week. And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> I'm like, okay, first of all, I don't think my body can like realistically absorb that much. You know, there's going to be so much like excess that's going to be accumulated in my liver. And I worry more about the toxicity, you know, of, mm -hmm. of uh, vitamin D toxicity, which can be pretty real than my prolonged vitamin D deficiency, which I haven't really felt like I don't really have like symptoms mm -hmm. from the vitamin D deficiency, but you know, whenever I hear about doctors prescribing 50,000 units of D2, I'm like, okay, uh, maybe, maybe, a maybe if you have like rickets, like if you're actually right. like, you know, like severely suffering from vitamin D deficiency and you have symptoms, mm -hmm. severe symptoms, maybe that makes sense. But generally speaking, you know, if you feel fine, normally and then you your blood test shows that you have vitamin d deficiency try the d3 supplementation with 2000 units a day first and then before you Evaluate. jump on to that yeah before you jump on to the 50,000 unit because mm -hmm. what could happen is that even though a lot of studies have shown um you know the 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 protective nature of a vitamin d supplementation but other studies have also shown too much vitamin D can increase your stroke risk mm -hmm. as well. So, so you have to, again, this balance, right? This idea of a balance, you have to just make sure you're in this nice zone, right? right? Instead of just too much or too little. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't even think that supplementation is the way to go all the time. I think that adequate mm -hmm. diet and exercise uh, uh, yeah, is always just, better because then you get sunlight and it's natural. Yeah. And, but, uh, but in, in realizing just maybe the, the new serum concentrations that are the most beneficial, like supplementation mm -hmm. could help, especially in those like re recovering from stroke. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm definitely on the page where it's like, I think getting it naturally is definitely the, the better way to go. Yeah. It, I, I would totally agree. Mm. I totally agree. Yeah. So what is one piece of advice advice you'd give to a 22 year old brain about brain health and just general mm -hmm. wisdom as someone who also might want to pursue like med or grad school, what mm -hmm. advice do you have basically? Yeah. So, um, in terms of brain health, like, you know, honestly, lifestyle, lifestyle is just always number one, 
right? Stay away from high fructose corn syrup. Studies have shown that high fructose corn syrup can actually deactivate the active form of vitamin D in your body and turn it into the inactive form. So again, and, and also, you know, high fructose corn syrup, I, I, it's like in everything in this country. I was like, going to say, how it got into so bread many and beer. still boggles my mind, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I walk into the grocery store and honestly, it's like, yeah. uh, there's, you know. <laughs> Everywhere, colors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So diet is probably the, the biggest factor. Right. Um, you know, sleep is huge. I don't, I think when you really need to emphasize on sleep, um, especially when, when you're young, you think, you know, you can pull all nighters and you can abuse your body, but it'll catch up to you. There's, oh, yeah. you know, the sleep that it'll catch up to you. And I have noticed, I, I used to be really bad with sleeping. Um, like I would go to sleep around 2 AM, you know, like mm-hmm. for since I was in high school, from wow. high school all the way through grad school, I would go to sleep at like 2 a.m. And then my my skin was really bad. Like, Mm -hmm. like, and then, and then I started, you know, after starting uh, uh, having a a day job, (laughs) I call this my day job. You're a real person. (laughs) Then I I started, you know, going to sleep earlier. I usually Mm -hmm. go to sleep by uh, midnight and then I would wake up around 7.30. So I get that like seven, seven and a half hours. You were like, guys, you should try this this sleep thing that I I discovered. (laughs) Highly recommend. Yeah, highly recommend. It's, it's a, it's called a beauty sleep, right? That's good, good sleep. So you Mm -hmm. get your beauty sleep and my Mm -hmm. skin cleared up. I've never seen something so effective that for clearing out my skin, because, you know, you would go in, buy all these cosmetics, you know, topical things, but no, it's all internal. Right, right. Those yeah. are just, these cosmetics are just replacing the things that they yeah. stole from us in the first place. Exactly. So yeah. if you try to address the root issue, um, get in and sleep, you know, when you're sleeping, your body detoxifies, your brain is detoxifying, mm. you know, uh, your body's undergoing repair. Like so many of the organs, so many different organs. You're consolidating like, memory. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a diet and then there's a sleep. I, I would, sleep is just so important. And then there's, you know, obviously exercise. But, I, you know, exercise, I would rank it not as important as the, <laughs> the sleep. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then just kind of, uh, you know, keeping your, your brain sharp, you know, just, um, you know, you don't necessarily, it's keeping their brain sharp, you know, you don't need to like read a lot. I mean, you could, you know, that's one way, you know, reading a lot of things, you know, but just doing different things, like, uh, you know, going to different places, trying new experiences, you know, that also increases BDNF and, and that also just like kind of you know keep your keep your brain sharp and just like taking up new hobbies i've heard it's yeah, exactly just like exactly you're just not artistic yeah, at all exactly and just kind of like just expose yourself to more things that the the last thing you want is just monotony don't just like the problem is so many people just sit on the couch and watch tv 
And like, if I try to do that, I get a, like a low grade fever. I don't know if I watch like more than a few hours of TV in one sitting, I get a little like feverish. Mm, I agree. <laughs> I get like stir crazy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, and, and meditation, like meditation, I probably, I mean, it's really popular now, but it's the reason it's popular is because it really really helps right there's a reason right? yeah there's a reason um so um and uh you're probably not going to hear this from other people but psychedelics <laughs> is good for your brain can you also tell me i meant to ask about um is, i think it's called strange genie oh yeah strange genie yeah, 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 yeah. about that yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so Strange Genie is a company where I co-founded in, in uh, grad school, uh, which is a uh, cannabis genetics company. So what it does is, um, so with cannabis, so right, you, there are over a thousand different strains of cannabis and they could have different effects, right? Some could put you to sleep, um, some um, kind of help you focus even, which you don't really hear that much, but there's like the creative strings, um, they're those elevating strings, more like more euphoric, like, um, and then there's strings that just kind of help you relax. And then there's also strains high in CBD, uh, that's good for, you know, uh, medicinal like purposes, such anti-inflammation and things like that. So, Strange Genie kind of takes your individual DNA and identify certain um, health risks that you may have. You know, perhaps um, you may be susceptible to lung cancer, right? And then what Strange Genie would do is it'll recommend you um, maybe if you okay. So this example, if you're prone to lung cancer then maybe we would say, oh, instead of smoking, maybe you should try tinctures, you know, you should try edible instead. Or if you're, um, and then we also look at uh, liver health, kind of, uh, you know, how your liver uh, metabolizes cannabis. So there's like the THC, how it metabolizes THC, how it metabolizes CBD. So for example, if you have a slow, slow metabolism, right, for uh, THC, then we would recommend maybe you reduce your edible intake, right? Because mm -hmm. what happens is, uh, so for example, I may have a reduced THC metabolism in my liver. You may have normal, right, THC metabolism. But if I take the same 10 milligram of THC edible and you take the same 10 milligram, I'm going to be so much higher than you to the point that I might have a bad time because of how slow my, my liver breaks it down. Uh, when it's breaking down slowly, I have more of that available in my circulating blood. So then it makes me more high. Whereas if you're like a normal metabolizer or even a fast metabolizer, you get rid of it in, uh, from your system quicker. So you, you don't wow. feel as high. So then that could, you know, help explain, you know, why certain people have really bad experiences, whereas other people are yeah. just fine. 
And um, if you check out uh, the Strange Genie website, strangegenie.com, you'll notice we there's like cancer, there's like even sleep. We look at, we assess kind of like 23andMe, you know, they look at like right. sleep, your sleep quality, your um, disease susceptibility, um, inflammation, your susceptibility to inflammation. So like things like that. Um, and it just helps provide a guide for people who want to use cannabis for various reasons and but don't know how to go about it because it's so confusing. That is so neat. I'm like, I don't even know where I'd start to oh, make yeah, check that. Out. So wow, it's amazing. So you check can out, check out the, yeah, check out the, check out the, the report. So we provide a, like a 60 page report. Um, and, you know, we only charge like 30, like say if you've already done uh, 23andMe or you've done uh, Ancestry.com, you can request the raw data, like that's yours. Mm -hmm. So then once you get the raw data, uh, you can upload to uh, Strangey. And then for only $30, you know, we break down all these uh, um, health susceptibilities or, um, or anything that we think cannabis might be. Uh, good for and then we also provide the recommendations about oh which strain should you try what terpenes so so terpene so so uh you know a, a cannabis plant right what we focus on normally we we think of thc cbd you know they're they're the uh, typical cannabinoids but there's also other ones and then there's also uh terpene that combined with the cannabinoids give you uh, this entourage effect that we talk about that's better than the individual isolates, right? Mm -hmm. So you buy, um, if you go buy uh, cannabis products, sometimes you'll see they, the labels saying full spectrum. So the full spectrum means that they've uh, kept most of the, the, the ingredients um, from the plant instead of extracting, isolating them. Because some places, you know, they might be like, oh, I just want THC isolate. But often those aren't as effective than just getting the whole plant and just, mm -hmm. like, just keeping the, everything in there. Because a lot of the, um, the clinical trials that have investigated, you know, like THC, if THC is effective for, you know, helping cancer patients and things like that, they're only looking at the isolate, right? Just a THC isolate, which is only like a, a small part of the equation sometimes. It's often the terpenes and other cannabinoids wow. that offer these other, you know, anti-inflammatory, like anti-nausea, like antimicrobial, like all those different effects. So, and I think that's part of the reason why there's like mixed efficacy um, findings for THC uh, in addressing a nausea for uh, these uh, cancer patients. Mm -hmm. It's because they're only using the isolate. Oh, wow. Yeah. What would you say? So if you're doing this and you also mm -hmm. work with um, people who are brain injured and brain injuries, what mm -hmm. do you say to the people who think that um, kind of THC or CBD is bad for your brain? What do you say to them then? Yeah. So what's funny is that, uh, you know, Dr. Patterson here, 
at Casa Colina. Okay, so he's in charge of the, a lot of the P, T, uh, uh, TBI uh, patients. And he's actually really interested in uh, cannabis, you know, in particular, I think uh, CBD, you know, how to use that to address a lot of the brain injury, like especially in sports. So there's actually a lot of the uh, uh, sports players take THC or CBD supplementation to help address these uh, the effects, the kind of concussion, you know, or the injuries uh, that they experience on the field. And because uh, cannabis, you know, helps with the um, inflammation, it's, it's actually, I would say it's suitable. I would say it's pretty suitable for um, people with a, you know, brain injury. And it could even promote uh, neuroplasticity because what happens is, uh, you know, when you're, when you, when you take a cannabis, there's, there are more, um, there are newer connections generated, right, across uh, different brain regions. So it could even enhance communication between brain areas, as well as, you know, reducing inflammation. So I think just, just that uh, people don't have a good understanding of cannabis and the research and, you know, it's still pretty taboo, but maybe not so as much in California, but, you know, it's only recently did the, the legalization occur and there's still so little research on cannabis Although UCLA is actually, UCLA is actually doing some uh, cannabis research. And it, I think in the, in the past, all these, uh, um, a lot of the, the cannabis research studies have been confounded by selecting people who are cannabis users, but then they're also like users of other street drugs, you know? Yeah, that's so then, point. yeah, so it's, if you can't, it's, and then it's hard to covary that out. So then, uh, you know, some of the research results indicating, oh, cannabis is, you know, bad for this, bad for that. I mean, it could be because those people were taking other substances, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and so I think now is the time that we can start actually studying cannabis uh, just with, with better control because, um, because now more people are taking it and not just, the you know, the druggies, uh, more people are taking it for, you know, various reasons. So then you can, you can study that better. You can have yeah. a better sample to study and yeah. then you can make better interpretations. I think that's so neat. I think that's much needed now. Cause I, like you said, there's so much we don't know. But exactly. how it works in the brain. So I think that's really interesting and very needed. I might go check out the website after this. Yeah. <laughs> um, just as a thank you for explaining that. Just as a last fun one, if you had to describe the brain in three words, what mm -hmm. would it be? I would say your entire universe. Our whole world is 
right? Our perception is essentially just we, we're yeah, we are we're here and everything we see, we experience relies on our brain, right? So I think it's it's reasonable to say that these three words, our entire world, our entire universe. I love that. Yeah, I think I like I like when people put it together into like a sentence instead of just mm-hmm. three adjectives. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that really works. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for giving me your your busy time to to talk with me and do this with me. But yeah, I no have problem. all the questions I had. Is there anything else that that you wanted to talk about or questions that you had? No, I think we we addressed. Yeah, you addressed everything and more. So thank you so much. Again. <laughs> yeah, I try to, um, you know, I try to use these uh, opportunities as a, as a way for me to learn as well. You know, like, for example, for so knowing that we're going to have this interview, I looked up, you know, Googled more about vitamin D, and then that helped me learn as well. So I think it's always good to just keep an open mind and just have the attitude of always wanting to learn something. Mm-hmm. And right, like what you said earlier, I think it's really important, just listen mm-hmm. to people, even if you think that yeah. they aren't trained in the same way you are, it's so yeah. important to just listen to people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so when you think about everything as a learning opportunity, then you don't get too upset about like, oh, my time is important, you know, like, yeah. I, I don't know, yeah. I, I feel like a lot of, a lot of uh, professionals are kind of stuck in this like, oh time like prioritizing time right but then you know just just use it as an opportunity for growth right and it makes me want to like hopefully if when I'm in this position it makes me want to give back you know to other yeah, people exactly, exactly. don't know what they're doing <laughs> which yeah, is exactly and um you know I I really do enjoy uh mentoring because you know we really need to invest in the younger generation because you know, maybe this, you know, one hour conversation had a, you know, impact on you and then you go on and impact other people in the future. So, you know, the good, the positive effects can propagate. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree. That is my, that is my life motto at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Don't feel scared to reach out to me. Um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm busy, but everyone's busy, but you know, it's can always make some time. Yeah. Right. Thank you so yeah. much. Well, um, good luck with the grant proposal uh, and for you. future grant proposals. And I will definitely reach out if I have any, have anything that I want to talk about. Yeah. Or, you yeah know. You know, it can even be just like, you know, life advice or mm. like grad school, med school, or, you know, anything that I can thank you that's so nice to hear because I really feel like I don't know what I'm doing like a lot of times so thank you so much yeah but I would definitely encourage you to kind of um, look into holistic medicine more or just just some of the philosophy is I think very valuable Mm -hmm. and I think you know um adopting this uh, kind of a eastern philosophy but then also um practicing western medicine i think can give you a more kind of comprehensive approach well thank you for this opportunity and uh no thank you and have a great weekend is it thursday yeah have a great yeah all right all right thank you bye bye
I feel that I gained so much from this interview. I'm very grateful that she was able to speak with me because getting a perspective from someone so knowledgeable, caring, and passionate about treating such a heterogeneous population is inspiring and intriguing. I look forward to hearing more about how much she contributes to understanding the brain. In editing this audio, I regretted not asking for clarification about her recommendation on psychedelics for the brain. I emailed her for some sources, to which she responded very quickly and kindly, that I wanted to share with you. These are sites that include a study from UC Davis in 2018, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, and the psychedelic research happening at Johns Hopkins that I will include in the show notes. In 2018, the UC Davis group investigated how serotonergic psychedelics, such as ones in the chemical classes of amphetamine or MDMA, tryptamine or DMT, and ergolin or LSD, promoted structural and functional neuroplasticity in cortical neurons. They introduced the word psychoplastogen, psych meaning mind, plast meaning molded, and gen meaning producing, which increased dendritic arbor density and promoted changes in neuronal structure across vertebrate or rats and invertebrates or drosophila species. The plasticity-promoting properties of psychedelics and intactogens even rivaled that of BDNF. This finding supports medicinal chemistry efforts aimed at identifying neurotherapeutics to treat atrophy of neurons in the prefrontal cortex for mood disorders such as depression. MAPS is studying whether MDMA-assisted psychotherapy can help heal the psychological and emotional damage caused by sexual assault, war, violent crime, and other traumas, as well as studying MDMA-assisted therapy for autistic adults with social anxiety and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for people with anxiety related to life-threatening illnesses. The Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research is investigating treatments using psilocybin, which is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound found in mushrooms. This compound penetrates the central nervous system, and they are just starting to understand its effects on the brain and mind, and using it as a therapeutic for mental illnesses. On the next podcast, we are going to continue to delve into how vitamin D levels affect stroke risk and rehab, as well as some drawbacks to some of these vitamin D studies. Thanks for listening. Thank you.